Turn with me to Daniel 2, and for those of you who've read ahead in preparation for this morning's message, you'll know that this is a lengthy part of the Bible. And so we're going to be breaking our scripture reading into a number of different sections today. We're going to be considering the message of this chapter under four main headings. First of all, Daniel's predicament. Secondly, Daniel's poise. Thirdly, Daniel's proclamation. And then finally, Daniel's promotion. Now back in chapter 1 of our text, the groundwork has been laid for understanding this book as a whole. This morning as we delve into chapter 2, we're going to be revisiting some familiar themes and we're going to be reminded there is indeed a God in heaven who holds the future in his hands. Divine sovereignty is the governing theme of this book and this morning with God's help, we're going to see through Nebuchadnezzar's dream that God is sovereign over history and that history will one day culminate in the full and the final arrival of God's kingdom. So with that brief introduction, let's turn to the word of God and read about Daniel's predicament in verses 1 to 13, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. The second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb. Your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards, great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you show me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. He commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Back in chapter 1, the scene has been set for the drama that is about to unfold here in chapter 2 as Daniel and his three friends once again find themselves in a life-threatening situation. Remember back in chapter 1 that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have been taken away from their families in Jerusalem and transported to the land of Babylon by force. And although these young men are prisoners of war, they are not thrown into jail They are not forced into slave labor, rather they are treated well by the king and subjected to a strategy of indoctrination that's intended to win their loyalty and prepare them for service in the government. Nebuchadnezzar's plan is to systematically brainwash them, then to use them as political pawns. But as we saw last time, Daniel and his friends did not fall for the king's bait, but chose instead to forego the pleasures of the world 
and to risk their own lives in order to remain faithful to God. Daniel understood at the beginning of this ordeal, he needed to draw a line in the sand. And as a result of that, God graciously preserved his life and gave him a position of influence and authority. Although it's absolutely true, the Babylonian exile was a terrible punishment for Israel's sin. It's becoming more and more clear in this book that God has a greater purpose in mind for these events. And as we saw last week from Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29, it is not God's will for these captives to play the role of victims or to wallow in self-pity. God has raised them up and God has sent them out on a missionary journey to a Gentile nation and it will put God's glory on display in the very highest place of earthly power. God has faithfully brought Daniel through the Babylonian university. Daniel's faith is still intact. And now in chapter 2, he is ready for his first ministry assignment from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the trials that we face in this life are all laid out by God for a good and sovereign purpose. And chapter 2 opens with yet another crisis that puts Daniel and his friends in a seemingly impossible situation. The king, as we've just read in this text, has experienced a nightmare. And although we don't know exactly what he dreamed, it has bothered the king to the point where he cannot find any peace during the day when he can't get any sleep at night. What a sad irony is here before us in the text. The wealthiest and the most powerful man on planet earth, a king who has everything that most of us could ever dream of, is a man without any peace or rest in his heart and life. From an outside perspective, Nebuchadnezzar was wealthy beyond imagination, but from a spiritual perspective, this king was a penniless beggar. And in the restlessness of this man, we see a depressing portrait of life lived apart from Jesus Christ. A worldly person whose only hope and security in this world is is rooted in the things that are destined to pass away and not in the things that are destined to last forever. Many years ago, St. Augustine, who was at one time a very worldly and an ungodly man himself, recorded a very well-known prayer. He said, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Augustine was right on target. If you and I choose to place our trust in the things of this world, we will ultimately find that those things fail to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. For as Jesus Himself said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Back when I was a child in in Sunday school, my teacher gave me a little pamphlet that I've kept tucked away in my Bible, and I pulled it out once again this week as I was preparing the sermon. It's entitled, What Money Cannot Buy, and here's what it says. Money can buy a house, but not a home. Money can buy a bed, but not sleep. Money can buy a clock, but not time. Money can buy a book, but not wisdom. Money can buy food, but not an appetite. Money can buy friends, but not love. Money can buy position, but not respect. It can buy insurance, but not security. Money can buy a Bible, but not peace with God. Money can buy religion, but it can't buy salvation. Friends, the truth is there is no lasting security and peace in the things of this world. That's why Nebuchadnezzar, a man who seemed to have it all, could not even sleep at night while a slave like Daniel remained confident and calm in some of the most hopeless of circumstances. 
Let's not miss the lesson here. When we put our hope in temporary things that are destined to die and to rot and to fade away, insecurity and hostility will be the natural response whenever those things are threatened or whenever those things are lost. Either we will despair and we will give, lose hope when our earthly treasures are taken, or else we will fight tooth and nail to hang on to what we cannot ultimately keep. That's what was happening to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream. He may not have understood the precise meaning of it, but he certainly knew enough to feel threatened by it. And his response to the threat was insecurity and hostility. He does not have the peace of God. He does not have the peace that comes through the gospel. You know, a few centuries after these events, the Apostle Peter was writing to a group of persecuted Christians and he encouraged them with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested in fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the reality is that you have everything to lose in this life and you have everything to lose in the life to come because none of your earthly possessions, none of your earthly relationships will follow you in the grave. As the old saying goes, there's never been a hearse with a trailer hitch. Once you die and your body goes into the ground, all of the things that you desperately clung on to for significance and salvation in this life will be gone forever. But this morning, if you're a Christian who knows the Lord, the truth is you have everything you need to be confident and satisfied in life. You can live out your days in the confident expectation of a better life to come in the kingdom of God. For to me, to live is Christ, Paul said, and to die is gain. Christian friends, how blessed we are to know the salvation of Christ. And if you don't yet know the Savior, I would encourage you and urge you to respond to the Gospel call. Repent of your sin this morning. Let go of your false idols. Cast yourself fully on the mercy and grace of the One who died on the cross for sinners like you and like me. Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. For truly Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Although most of us here this morning probably put very little stock in the dreams that we have at night and often forget those dreams as soon as we step out of bed in the morning, dreams and visions were considered to be very significant in the ancient world. King Nebuchadnezzar, although he was not a godly man, was a deeply religious man. He was a man who believed in a world that was governed by many different gods and goddesses, some of them that were friendly and benevolent and others that were hostile and threatening. The king believed that the gods in heaven communicated with human beings, that they revealed the future in a variety of ways, not the least of which was through dreams and visions. And that's why it was such a priority in the ancient world to train up priests and wise men and then to place these guys on the government payroll. 
The wise men had an important role to play, and the king would often call upon them to placate the gods with a sacrifice, or to discern an omen that would help him make the right decision, or perhaps to interpret the meaning of a dream or a vision. This was the intended career path for Daniel and his friends as they served within the government to become wise men, to become educated religious advisors to the king. Like many university students today who are exposed to false philosophies like Darwinism and Marxism, so Daniel and his friends were forced to learn a pagan worldview that did not match up with the faith they had embraced back in Israel. You can imagine some of the difficult tensions these boys must have faced as they sat through those classes on astrology, as they memorized the zodiac, as they were instructed on all the false gods and goddesses of Mesopotamia. These young men were introduced to a religion and a worldview that went totally against the grain of their faith in the one true God. But in spite of all of those challenges, there is no evidence here in the text that Daniel moved even one inch off the course. You know, friends, there is always going to be a danger from being exposed to the false wisdom of the world. But there is also an advantage that comes when we understand the philosophies and the worldviews that we're up against. For after all, how are we going to stand up against the enemy and earnestly contend for truth in the public square if we don't understand what our culture believes or how our culture thinks? Last Sunday, I shared with you how my years in university presented a challenge to my faith in Christ. But you know something? When I look back at those years in Babylon, I'm thankful for the opportunity that God gave me to better understand how people in our fallen world think, how their worldview is often radically different than ours. Now, without question, there are dangers to being exposed to the false wisdom of the world, but there are also advantages to it for the sake of the kingdom. And by learning the language and the literature and the religion of the Babylonians, Daniel was not only being challenged in his faith, he was being equipped by God for a missionary task. Through this tuition-free training program offered by Nebuchadnezzar, God was helping Daniel and his friends understand the foreign culture in a way that few others back in Israel ever could. And although the concluding verses of chapter 1 tell us that the king found Daniel to be ten times better than all of the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom, we shouldn't conclude from that that Daniel embraced any of those pagan practices that went against God's law. As one of the wise men and advisors in the palace, he was certainly familiar with astrology and other pagan practices, but that doesn't mean that Daniel embraced these things any more than it means that I embraced the theory of evolution just because I learned about it in school. And so here again, we are reminded in the text that making an effort to understand the culture doesn't mean that we need to embrace the culture wholesale or to capitulate to the culture in a way that would compromise our stand for God and our witness in the world. It is not God's will that we as Christian people withdraw completely from the culture and go live in a monastery somewhere or that we isolate ourselves from non-believers. But the Lord does, does want us to be discerning. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to test all things against the touchstone of His inspired Word. Many of the religious practices that Daniel would have learned in Babylon were off limits according to the law of God. But interestingly, the interpretation of dreams was not one of them. In fact, this was a touch point that the Jewish people held in common with the Babylonians. Skim through the Bible later this afternoon. You'll discover that God is sometimes chosen to communicate with human beings through dreams and visions. 
the Old Testament. We see this, for example, in the story of Abraham and Abimelech. And we see it in the life of Jacob. We observe it in the story of, of Joseph, who was also an interpreter of dreams in the service of a pagan king. We even see it here in Daniel too, as the one true God of heaven speaks in a dream to this pagan ruler. And then when we flip over to the New Testament, we learn that God sent dreams and visions to Joseph and to the Magi and to Pilate's wife and to Ananias and to Cornelius, to Peter. Very clearly, friends, the testimony of Scripture shows us God can and God sometimes does speak to both believers and non-believers in dreams. But let me be quick to add here that in the New Covenant era, the primary way, the only authoritative way that God speaks to us is through His written and inspired Word. Friends, I want to emphasize to you this morning, the Bible that you are holding in your hands is the final and absolute authority in all things. It is the touchstone against which any impression, any dream, any word of prophecy must be tested. And what that means very practically is that we Christians should not be pursuing some kind of new word or new revelation from the Lord. Rather, we should be seeking to understand God's will as He has already revealed it to us in the Bible. We must reaffirm in our generation the Reformation truth of sola scriptura, that the Word of God is final, that the Word of God is sufficient for everything that we need. As one of my favorite pastors, Steve Lawson, has put it, if you want to hear God speak to you in an audible voice, all you need to do is open up your Bible and read from it out loud. Brothers and sisters, I am a staunch defender of the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible, but that doesn't mean that our God lives in a box or that He might not in some situations choose to reveal the truth of His Word through a dream. Perhaps, for example, in Muslim countries where millions of people who do not, do not have access to the Bible or to a church family. And as some of you have probably heard, there are thousands of testimonies of Muslims coming to faith through a dream or a vision that pointed them towards the revealed truth of God's Word. But understand, friends, these types of experiences are exceptional in the New Covenant. And again, I would caution you from chasing after unusual experiences when God has given us everything we need in His written and inspired Word. For the Christian believer, the Word of God is the final authority. But we know that at this early stage of redemptive history, God sometimes did speak through the mediums of dreams and vision. And here in Daniel 2, we discover this was a belief shared by the pagans. Nebuchadnezzar had a very unusual dream that he attributed to the gods. And as we've already mentioned, he was not at all comforted by what he saw. And so in response to this nightmare, Nebuchadnezzar did what other kings of his day would have done. He summoned the wise men to give him an explanation to help him know what the gods in heaven were trying to say and what he should do as a response. Nothing really unusual in the king's request for interpretation, but what's very strange in this particular case is the king's demand in verse 5. It says, The word from me is firm. If you do not make it known to me, the, known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. You see, not only did King Nebuchadnezzar want his wise men to tell him the interpretation as they'd been trained to do, in this case, the king ups the ante. He demands that they tell, that, tell him the actual content of the dream itself. This was unprecedented as we can tell from their response. Have another look at verse 10. 
They say to the king, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king is asked that such a thing, such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. If you happen to bring a pen with you this morning, I'd suggest that you either underline or put a star there beside verse 11 because it is one of the most important statements in the entire chapter. It is a remarkable admission on the part of these so-called wise men. The irony here on these verses is hard to miss as these religious leaders who claim to be the mediators between the gods in heaven and the king on earth admit the futility of their religion and confess their total inability to speak with the gods. But not only that, we see through this exchange that King Nebuchadnezzar himself does not fully trust his religion. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put the priest to this kind of test. At this point in the narrative, we are confronted with an interesting plot twist as Nebuchadnezzar has inadvertently placed his own worldview and religion on trial, threatening his advisors with a painful death if they did not deliver the impossible and then sending out the executioner to uh, carry out the decree. Although Daniel and his friends are certainly not cut from the same cloth as these other advisors, their identification as wise men has placed them in an impossible predicament. It's brought them to the very brink of death. And now again, these young men are confronted with a difficult choice, either to throw up their hands in despair like the Babylonians, or else to place their trust in the true and the living God. Well, verses 1 to 13 of our text place Daniel and his friends in a terrible predicament. But as we move now to verses 14 to 24, we're going to marvel at Daniel's amazing poise as he stares down death and confronts this restless king. Let's pick up our reading in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. You know, one of the things that I love about this chapter in the book of Daniel is that it is so full of irony and contrast. And here in the passage we just read, the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel could not be more stark and pronounced. One of these two men is at the very pinnacle of earthly power. The other is sitting on death row as a slave. 
One of them is devoted to pagan worship. The other one is devoted to the worship of the true God. One of them is agitated and restless. The other is peaceful and clear-headed. One of them is eager to take innocent life. The other is willing to risk his own life to save others. The contrast here is vivid, and we the readers can't help but be impressed by Daniel's uncommon wisdom and poise. When that stunning death sentence went out from the king, and when the executioner came knocking on Daniel's door, we're told in verse 14 that Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Unlike all of the other wise men who answered in panic and exasperation, Daniel wisely asked the king for more time. And instead of using that time as an excuse to plan his, his escape or to think up some clever way to wriggle out of his predicament, Daniel instead calls up his closest friends and invites them to a prayer meeting. He models for us here what so many of us forget when we are faced with the crisis. Back in verse 11, the Babylonian advisors confess to the king they are not able to, to communicate with their gods. But here in verse 17, we see Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah speaking openly to the Lord, asking Him for mercy in their difficult time. Brothers and sisters, as we examine this real-life story in front of us today and think back to some of the predicaments that we have faced in our own lives, I can't help but wonder whether we would identify more with Daniel and his three friends or more with the Babylonian wise men. When we find ourselves in the middle of trial and affliction, how is it that we respond? Do we transform into functional atheists and pagans or do we fall to our knees in total dependence on the sovereign God of the Bible? This is a chapter in God's Word that provokes me to sober self-reflection and I hope it does the same to you as we ask this question, what is my response in a time of crisis? Do I panic or do I pray? Do I try to manage the, the crisis with my own human resources or do I immediately seek the wisdom and mercy of God? And somehow, friends, I think if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we would have to admit that all too often prayer is the last resort and not the first priority. You know, the more that I study this book, the more that I reflect on the life and ministry of Daniel, the more convinced I become that the secret to Daniel's remarkable poise and wisdom under pressure is directly related to his prayerfulness. Here is a man of incredible intelligence and education and skill, but yet Daniel is first and foremost a humble man whose trust is not in himself and his own abilities, but in the sovereign God of heaven. Daniel's first impulse in a time of crisis is to pray. But notice secondly from our text that his heart is also full of praise and worship for God. Verse 19, we're told, in response to their earnest prayer for mercy, the Lord revealed the king's dream to Daniel. And the very next thing out of Daniel's mouth is a song of praise and worship to the Lord. It's sincere and heartfelt recognition that God is great and that all the glory belongs to Him and not to us. And once again, I wonder here, friends, how often you and I have gone before the Lord in a time of need, how often we presented our requests and our pleas before Him, but have neglected to return to Him and to thank Him for all of the great things that He's done. Can't speak for you, but sometimes I feel a lot like those ten lepers over in Luke 17. Those men who pleaded with the Lord for mercy and grace. They experienced His grace, but they never responded to Him in thankful worship. 
Only one of the ten lepers ever took the time to come back and to worship the Lord. There's so much that we can learn here from our brother Daniel. One of the great lessons here in chapter 2 is that prayer and praise always go together in the Christian life. Daniel took the time to pray at the beginning of the trial. He worshipped the Lord even before this crisis had been resolved. Even before he and his friends were totally out of the woods. It's an important reminder uh, not only to worship the Lord when things are going well in our lives and when the seas are calm and serene, but to worship the Lord while the storm is still raging all around us, declaring as Daniel does in these verses that God is completely wise, that God is meticulously sovereign, that God is awesome in power, and that God is the fount of every blessing and grace. You see, friends, worship not only expresses a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving to God, it also aligns our hearts, it aligns our minds away from ourselves and back onto Him. Whenever we pray to God, we're reminded that we human beings are small and weak, in constant need of God's help. But whenever we praise and worship, we're reminded that the God who saved us is mighty and strong. That's why we need to make use of both of these gifts as we walk through this life and as we face off against the world and the flesh and the devil. Well, so far this morning in our text, we've seen Daniel's predicament and Daniel's point. Now, thirdly, we continue along to see Daniel's proclamation beginning in verse 25. Verse 25, Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and, and, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to the king, Neb king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding, exceeding brightness, stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and, and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its leg, legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever, uh, wherever they dwell, the children of men, and beasts of the field, and birds of the heavens, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. 
Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. Well, the moment of truth has finally arrived for Daniel and his three friends. They have stood before the heavenly king in praise and prayer, and now Daniel has been called to stand before the earthly king and to proclaim God's truth to power. Already in this chapter, we've observed a number of different ironies and contrasts. And now in verse 25, we see yet another irony as this military captain named Arioch tries to get in on the action and take a bit of the credit for himself. Arioch is a master of self-promotion and it causes the reader to wonder whether Daniel will also be seduced by this temptation when it's his turn to speak, whether he'll try to glorify himself before the king or whether he'll give the glory to God. If Daniel was the sort of guy who wanted to climb up the corporate ladder by stepping on top of others, this would have been the perfect time for him to make his move. He is now in a position to promote himself as the wisest man in Babylon, to take all of the credit for what's about to happen, and to throw all of the competition under the bus. But you'll notice from the text that this is not what Daniel chooses to do. Instead of exalting himself at the expense of others, Daniel confirms in verse 27 what the wise men already told the king. There is not a man on earth who can do what the king has asked. And that includes, by the way, the man named Daniel. A little earlier on in the message, I told you to put a star beside verse 11. Now you can put a second one beside verses 27 and 28 because these verses complement one another in a remarkable way. Daniel's response to the king in verse 27 confirms what the wise men have already said about the limitations of men, but you will notice one major difference. When the wise men spoke to the king back in verse 11, they admitted that the pagan gods stand aloof in the heavens, that they are unapproachable to men on earth. But when we look at Daniel's words now in verse 27 and 28, we're brought to see there is indeed a God in heaven and that this God is not at all like the false gods of the Babylonians. The pagan gods of Babylon were not able to reveal the meaning of the king's dream and the reason for that is simple. It's because those gods and goddesses do not really exist. They are worthless idols fabricated in the vain imagination of man. But now Daniel stands up and he tells the king there really is a God in heaven who is fundamentally different than all the rest. He's the God who is really there. He's the God who's not silent. 
He's a God who's not inaccessible to men. This is the God who wants to make Himself known to people on earth. And not only to Daniel and the chosen people back in Israel, He wants to make Himself known to this pagan idolater named Nebuchadnezzar. How amazing is the grace of God. Verse 27 and 28 are critical to understanding the meaning of the chapter because they remind us, as I've already said several times in previous sermons, this book is not in the final analysis a book about a courageous man named Daniel. It is a book about the God of heaven who reveals Himself to men on earth. The key sentence here in this chapter appears in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. That is the title of our sermon today. It's the key thought of the entire chapter. And if you truly believe, as Daniel and his friends believe, that there is a God in heaven, and that this God desires to make Himself known to people on earth, that truth will change everything in your life. How tragic, how sad that millions of people in our world today have put their hope and their trust in false gods, in false religions that promise what they can never deliver. On the other hand, how marvelous, brothers and sisters, that you and I have been called to serve the true and the living God of heaven and earth. King David said it well in Psalm 96, the gods of the nations are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. It is our God, Christians. It is our God alone who reveals mysteries to men on earth. And the good news we need to hear this morning is that this God who spoke to Daniel so many years ago has made Himself known to us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one to whom Daniel and all of the prophets were pointing. He is the one in whom history finds its fulfillment. You know, it's tempting for a pastor to camp out here on Nebuchadnezzar's dream to look at all the fine details of the interpretation. But we're not going to do that this morning because it's not really the main focus of this chapter and also because we're going to have an opportunity to study those details when we get to chapter 7. Suffice it to say, for our purposes this morning, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue was a God-given glimpse into the future, beginning with the Babylonian Empire as the head of gold, moving forward in time towards the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. This is a succession of world empires that become progressively weaker until finally an indestructible stone appears that smashes them all to smithereens. Now for Daniel and his friends who are at this time under the thumb of the Babylonians, this dream was an encouraging word from the Lord. It reminded them that the exile is not the end of their story. This is a reminder that God's kingdom will triumph over all of the other kingdoms of this world. God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is indestructible. God's kingdom is universal. It's a kingdom that grows, as the text tells us, into a great mountain that fills the whole earth with the glory of God. Daniel was looking forward in time, but now from our vantage point, as we look backward in time at this incredible dream, we can see with greater clarity than Daniel did that the stone in the dream is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. And as Jesus Himself said many years later in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This dream should be a great encouragement for all those who have longed and prayed for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. But for Nebuchadnezzar, this dream was not intended to be an encouragement. 
It was intended to be a warning. Now, of course, in one sense, God is affirming that Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head of the statue. He is, after all, the ruler of the most powerful empire the world has known. And next week, when we turn the page and move into chapter 3, we're going to learn that Nebuchadnezzar was greatly flattered by this part of the dream and that he foolishly let it go to his head. In reality, though, this dream is not flattery. This dream is a solemn warning. God is warning warning him. Even the strongest of kings, even the most powerful of empires have an expiry date. Not even the golden head of this statue is going to be able to withstand the destructive effects of the stone. And so here is the Lord, and He is calling this arrogant pagan king to humble himself and repent. It's the same message we read earlier in Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Well, given the fact that this dream was a divine warning for Nebuchadnezzar not to think too highly of himself or to, or to think that his kingdom was invincible, it must have taken Daniel a great deal of courage to deliver this message just as God revealed it to him. The true interpretation of this dream may very well have enraged the king. It may have caused him to kill Daniel and his friends right on the spot. But remarkably, we see here that God's servant is determined to faithfully proclaim God's message with a view towards God's glory, regardless of what the outcome might be. And so too, Christian brothers and sisters, are we called in our generation to declare the truth of God's word to a world that is lost and headed towards eternal destruction. God has called and commissioned us to preach the gospel to all creation. And He has told us in advance, it will be the aroma of life to all those He has chosen, and it will be the stench of death to those who reject Him. Evangelism requires courage, friends. It requires a resolve on the part of God's people to speak God's truth in love, no matter what kind of response we might receive. Well, as we conclude our time in the Word this morning, let's look at King Nebuchadnezzar's response in the last few verses, beginning again at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of, Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him a ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. Although we may have expected this proud and arrogant king to fly into a rage when Daniel told him that the kingdom would one day be taken away from him and brought to ruin, instead we see something remarkable that happens in the palace. In this final irony, in this greatest irony in the chapter, we see the most powerful man in the ancient world lying on his face before a Jewish slave. 
It's jaw-dropping. It's a shocking reversal of roles. And although the king was not truly converted through this experience, he has been brought to realize the power and authority of the one true God, the king whose kingdom will one day fill the whole earth, the God who reveals mysteries to men. Nebuchadnezzar's dramatic and totally unexpected response is but a small foreshadowing of that great and future day when every knee will bow in heaven and on on earth and when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord from the very greatest to the very least. In His sovereign wisdom and grace, the Lord saw fit to promote Daniel and his friends to positions of even greater influence in Babylon. And that's a wonderful and encouraging thing to see. But we would be greatly mistaken to conclude that this is what we all should expect whenever we go out into the world and proclaim God's truth. When Daniel spoke God's truth to King Nebuchadnezzar, he was promoted, he was honored according to the sovereign purpose of God. But years later, when another prophet named John the Baptist spoke God's truth to a different king, he ended up losing his head. Here's the point. You and I cannot control the response that we will receive when we're faithful to proclaim God's truth with a view towards towards God's glory. But what we can be sure of is that God will always honor His Word. He will always honor it and His purposes will be accomplished. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen.